following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Uh, in, in many churches and cathedrals around the world, there is a stained glass window image that looks like this. You might have seen it. It's, uh, there's variations on the same theme, but it always contains four images. There's a lion, a human man, an ox, and an eagle. And these are depictions of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of these creatures represents something about that gospel, the essence of that gospel. So the lion represents Matthew, uh, because Matthew presents Jesus as the lion of Judah, the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of Israel's great story. The man represents Mark, because, you'll love this, it is the plainest and most straightforward of all the gospels, which sounds like men. Uh, the ox represents Luke because the ox is the animal of sacrifice and service and Luke presents Jesus as the, the servant of all people and the great sacrifice for all people. And the eagle represents John because the gospel of John soars over the heads of the other gospels and presents this beautiful picture of Jesus in all of his glory all of his divinity, all of his power, all of his majesty, all of his deity as the living, eternal word of God. And John manages to do that without compromising an ounce of Jesus' humanity. Jesus still weeps at the tomb of Lazarus, as Sean talked about. He still asks a Samaritan woman for a drink of water. He still has breakfast on the beach with his mates. He's still thoroughly human, and yet, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus keeps saying things like, I am the bread of life. I am the vine. I am the true gardener. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheepfold. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Over and over again, identifying himself with the one who appeared to Moses and said, I am who I am. This is Yahweh in human form. This is John's picture of Jesus. It's a fascinating gospel, and what I want to do today as we approach the gospel of John is give you an overview of this book uh, and give you a framework for approaching the gospel of John, and then we're going to dive into the text itself next week, into chapter 1. Uh, just a quick word on the author of John. If you look at the beginning of your gospel, you've probably got a big heading there that says something like John or the gospel according to John or the gospel of John or something like that. None of that was in the original version of this document, okay? None of that was there. There is no point in this gospel where the author says, Hi, my name's John, or I, John, am writing this. He, he doesn't say that. He or she doesn't say that, right? This book is officially formally anonymous, like the other three gospels. It's not identified by name. That title, the Gospel of John, only got added at the point the New Testament books began to be compiled. But when it was first written, it was anonymous. So we don't officially know who wrote the Gospel of John, but there are some pretty significant clues. In the second to last verse of the whole Gospel, the author makes this passing reference to himself in the third person. 
He says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. So there's a third person reference to the author of the book talking about himself in the third person. And then a few verses before that, the same disciple is mentioned as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one whom leaned against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper, or the beloved disciple, as some older translations say. And that person, the beloved disciple, appears a number of times in John's Gospel in the latter chapters of the book. So whoever the beloved disciple is, he is the author of this gospel. And the traditional view is that the beloved disciple is the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. That's the view I'm going to take in this series. Uh, I think it's a pretty strong view. That would mean, if you take this view, that John, who wrote this gospel, is the same John who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the letters, and probably the same John who wrote the book of Revelation. Now, every one of those points is disputed. Every one of them is debated. There's plenty of biblical scholars who will argue strongly that John did not write this gospel and it should be attributed to somebody else. That's fine. I just want to let you know the working assumption that I'm going to use in this series is that the gospel was written by John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, and so that's the same person as the beloved disciple when he crops up. Now, the good thing about John is that he gives us a pretty clear statement as to why he wrote this gospel. It's a really useful place to start. So turn over to John chapter 20. In verse 31, John gives us this snapshot of why he's put pen to paper and written a gospel. He says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word believe is the Greek word pistuo, and it's the word for faith. It could mean faith as a one-off event, so coming to place your faith in Jesus for the first time, having faith in him as the Son of God, the Messiah. Or it could mean faith as a continual thing, an ongoing sense of continuing to believe. John may be saying these things were written so that you might continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So probably in this context, it means both. In, in one sense, John's gospel was written to encourage those people who are not Christians to become followers of Jesus, to promote faith, to encourage people. John lays out the life of Jesus and says, here it is. You decide. Who is this man? Who is he? And John's encouragement is that you'll reach the same conclusion he did, that this is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and you would place your faith in Jesus and have life. But John's gospel is also written to encourage the faith of those who already believe. Those who are committed to Christ, those who formed these Christian communities in the first century, John's writing this gospel so that their faith would be stirred and encouraged and that we might read about the life of Jesus and our faith may be fanned into flame as we see his teaching, as we see his interactions with various people, as we especially see his death and resurrection on our behalf, that our faith might be strengthened and nurtured and formed, especially in times of difficulty and hardship. So John's writing to encourage faith and to sustain and to nurture the faith of Christians. But the really interesting thing about John is why this gospel is so different to the others. Because in a sense, all of the gospels are written to encourage faith so that people would believe Jesus is the Messiah, so that their faith might be encouraged. That's not particularly unique to John. 
But if you've read much of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it doesn't take long to see that John is just in a world of his own. Whether or not he knew about the other Gospels at the time, he is doing his own thing. He is telling his own story about Jesus. A lot of the material in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is very similar. That's why we call them the synoptic Gospels. There are a lot of strong similarities, a lot of common material to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But very little material that overlaps between John and the other three. So for example, if we only had the Gospel of John... Out of the four Gospels, if we only had John, we'd never know about Jesus' birth. We'd never know about his parables. We'd never know about his teachings about the kingdom of God, a theme that we'd consider so central to the ministry of Jesus. We wouldn't know about it because John's not interested. John just bypasses those things. He's got other things he wants to focus on. And then by contrast, if we only had Matthew, Mark, and Luke and we didn't have John, we would never know the story of Jesus turning water to wine, talking about the Samaritan woman, uh, with the Samaritan woman, talking with Nicodemus about what it means to be born again, the picture of Jesus washing his disciples' feet at the Last Supper, Jesus reinstating Peter after his resurrection. We wouldn't know any of those things if we didn't have John because John alone gives us those parts of Jesus' life. John has got a unique focus. He's telling the story of Jesus as all the Gospels are, but he's telling it in a unique way. He's telling the Jesus story in a distinct way. And I think you can pick up the kind of story that John is telling from the very first three words of this Gospel. Turn over to John chapter 1. First three words of of John's gospel are are so famous, they're simply this, in the beginning. To any Jewish person, what are they immediately going to think? Genesis, in the beginning. First three words that the Bible begins with in Genesis 1, in the beginning. John uses the same words as he starts his gospel. It's not an accident. What's he doing? He's telling the creation story. John's going back to the beginning. Back to the beginning, not just of Israel's story, but of the world's story, of humanity's story, right to the beginning of all things, and he's telling the story again. This is a creation story. And yet the very next phrase tells you where John's going to depart from the first creation story. In Genesis 1, you have, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In John 1, you have, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word, we find out, is Jesus. This is a creation story with a difference. This is a creation story that is centered around the person of Jesus. It is a new creation story with Jesus at its very center. John is telling the story of Jesus who comes as the bearer of God's new creation, bringing renewal into the world. That's why John loves images like light and life. Light shining into darkness. Life replacing the power of death. These are creational images. And John is drawing together the story of creation and showing how Jesus is now coming, bringing about a new creation, breathing new life, bringing new life out of nothingness, speaking new light into darkness. He is the healer. He is the mender. He is the restorer of God's good world. This is a new creation story. And that is not just something that happens in the first chapter of John. 
I'd argue that this is the structure of the whole gospel. One of the things that John's gospel is famous for is the signs of Jesus, the seven signs. There are seven miracles that Jesus performs in John, which is specifically called signs. Samion is the Greek, signs. Jesus does many miracles, but only seven are called signs. And they work their way through the first half of John's gospel. The raising of Lazarus is the last one, and it's the last miracle that John performs. The first of them, turning water into wine, is specifically called the first of the signs. The others aren't numbered, but you can mark them off from there. Seven signs. Now, at one level, these are signs that Jesus is who he said he was, the Son of God, the Messiah. Only the Son of God can do these things, these miraculous events. In another deeper sense, though, these are signs of something far greater. These signs, I think, are actually signposts to the new creation. Each of these signs are showing us something about what God's renewed world looks like, what the new creation will look like when God puts everything right again. Every one of these signs gives a little more of the picture of the new creation. So, for example, the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. It's a well-known miracle, and it often gets reduced to a story about sharing what you have with others because the boy comes up with his fish and loaves and gives it to Jesus. There's a lot more going on here than just a lesson on sharing. This is a sign of the new creation. When you look at that scene, 5,000 people filled have, have enough, they have plenty. You are seeing what God's new creation looks like, what God's renewed world is going to look like. It's a world in which there is plenty for everyone. It's a world in which there is enough. It's a world in which nobody goes without food. It's a world in which there is equality between all people. All are equally fed. It's a beautiful picture that picks up on so much of what the prophet said about what the new creation, what this new age will look like. An age of bounty, an age of plenty, an age of abundance, an age of provision. That's just one miracle. Each of the miracles do this. They show you a new dimension of what this new creation is going to look like. And it's no accident that there are seven of them. Seven signs, seven days of creation. What is John doing? He's walking us through the creation story. He's walking us through day by day the creation story. And he's showing how now Jesus is bringing about new creation. Jesus is recreating. He's bringing about new life. He's bringing about tastes and pictures and glimpses of what the renewal of this world will look like, just as the author of Genesis does in chapter 1 and 2. And then here's where it gets really interesting. The last of these signs is the raising of Lazarus, which Sean so beautifully talked us through. Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus. It's the last miracle in John. It's the last of the signs. It's the seventh sign. But the miracle of Lazarus itself points towards something far greater. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Raising Lazarus from the dead unmistakably points forward to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' own raising from the dead. This is going to be the climax of the whole gospel. This is going to be the greatest miracle in the whole book. And when John comes to telling that part of the story, when he comes to telling the story of Jesus' resurrection, here's how he begins, John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. Now that 
you could write off as a passing reference to the day of the week, but I think there's a lot more going on here. In view of the story that John is telling, a new creation story, what's he doing here in chapter 20 by saying it was the first day of the week and it was still dark? And then out of the darkness comes resurrection on the first day of the week. The story is starting again. Creation is starting again. It's the first day of the week. John's just talked us through the whole week of creation. John's just walked us through seven days of creation. And now here we are on the eighth day. The resurrection of Jesus is the eighth day of creation. The resurrection of Jesus is the eighth sign in the gospel and the climax of the whole book. It is the great miracle to which all the other miracles point. It's the first day of the new creation week. All of these other miracles were signs and they were foretastes and they were glimpses and they were little close-up looks. But now John gets to the main event with the resurrection of Jesus. The new creation truly arrives. It bursts upon the scene and Jesus' own resurrection is the first installment of the new creation. It's really here now, John is saying. It's the first day of a new week. Creation has now truly started. Welcome to the age of resurrection. Welcome to the age of the new creation. This is the story John is telling. And ever since then, we're living in this space. We're living in the eighth day. We're living in the first day of the new week. This new creation day. The age of resurrection, where the power of Jesus' resurrection is rolling forward and making all things new. Making our lives new and through us, bringing renewal into the world. Now, admittedly, there's nowhere in the Gospel of John where he uses the word creation or new creation. But he does have a word. He does have a word for it. When John wants to talk about this new creation that Jesus is bringing about, he uses a very simple Greek word the word zoe, which is translated life. Sometimes it's just translated life. Sometimes it's translated eternal life, like the famous John 3.16. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal zoe, eternal life. And life is such a creation word. It's so connected with what God did when he first brought the world about. He brought life. He spoke life into being. And now John says, he loves using this word right through the gospel. Jesus is going about bringing life. He's speaking life into people. And he's inviting people into this thing or this age called eternal life. Eternal zoe. And we tend to think of eternal life as this thing that we get when we die. You go to heaven and then you're going to receive eternal life. Like it's some kind of commodity that you can hold on to. But for John, eternal life starts now. Eternal life starts the moment a person believes. The moment a person places their faith in Jesus, they enter into eternal life. And it's not something that we just get, that we hold on to. It's not even something that we receive inside of ourselves. Eternal life is something that we enter into. We participate in it. It's like this new age that we get to walk through the door into Zoe, into life, into the age of the resurrection. And we are participating in this reality now through Jesus. We get to enter into Zoe, into true and full and real life because of Jesus. And the way that we do this to come full circle, 
is through faith. That's why John says that by believing, by having faith in Jesus as Messiah, as Son of God, you may experience life. You may experience Zoe. So we place our faith in Jesus, and through having faith in him, we enter into this wonderful new reality of Zoe, the new creation that Jesus is bringing about, the renewal of this world. This, I think, is the message of the Gospel of John, that Jesus has come as the bearer of a whole new creation. And not a new creation that's coming in from outside, but a renewal of the world from within. He showed us signs and glimpses and tastes of it during his ministry, and then with his resurrection, it came about more fully and truly and concretely upon the earth. And now, through Christ and through all those who are united to him through faith, the power of his resurrection is moving forward. In the face of death, in the face of uncreation, in the face of the kingdom of darkness, the resurrection of Jesus is rolling forward and making all things new. We're invited and encouraged to participate in that age through placing faith in Jesus and experiencing the life that he offers and promises in his name. So as we go through the Gospel of John, this will provide a way of looking at what John is doing. And we'll see as we go and as we look at these people that Jesus interacts with, as we see the miracles that Jesus performs, as we see him teaching and at times rebuking, and especially as we see his death and resurrection, what we will see is an unfolding of creation itself, unfolding of a new creation with Jesus at its very center as the living, eternal word of God. So I think the eagle is a pretty good metaphor for John, a pretty good image for the gospel of John. The, the eagle is the only animal that can look directly into the sun without damaging its eyes. And John, maybe of all the books in the whole Bible, allows us to look most directly into the light of the knowledge of the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus. It's a light that's so bright, at times you almost feel like you have to turn away. But if we're prepared to look straight at it, if we're prepared to stay with it and walk through this gospel and allow this incredible picture of Jesus to work away in our hearts, we will get one of the most spectacular views of Jesus in the entirety of the scriptures. And we'll be changed by it. So may this gospel do exactly what it was intended to do for these earliest Christian communities into which it was written. May it encourage our faith. May it bring those who don't have faith in Christ to a saving, believing relationship with him. And for those of us that do know Jesus, may our journey through this gospel encourage our faith. May it stir our faith and may it strengthen our faith to the glory of God as we take this journey through this gospel together this year. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we want to thank you for your servant John, that you put it in his heart to write a gospel, not just to write letters and not just to write an apocalypse, but to write a gospel, to write a story of Jesus. We thank you that he put pen to paper. We thank you that you have sustained this gospel down through the centuries, that it's found its way into our Bible, that we can read it, that we can learn from it, and that we can be transformed by it. 
And God, as we look together at this story of Jesus this year, we pray that it would come alive for us in a new way. We pray that we wouldn't just see words on a page, but that we would see Jesus, that we would see him in all of his glory and all of his humanity. We pray that we would see him as the word made flesh. We pray we would see him as the bearer of your new creation. And we pray that that new creation, that resurrection, that he came to bring the zoe, the life, we pray that it would flood our hearts and our lives again in whatever way we need to be changed, in whatever way we need your life in place of the death and the darkness that's at work in us and around us. We pray that through your word, through this gospel, through the life of Jesus, that we might receive again life and that we might enjoy and experience the eternal life that is available in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.